0: Hey, some in Midtown, good morning. Welcome to the teaching portion of our gathering. If you have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll start uh, this morning in verse 16 and read through verse 25. Here are these words from the Apostle Paul. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, With its passions and desires, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This morning, we're going to be bringing to an end our series on the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence, and I want to kind of bring this all together and put this together and talk about what it looks like. How do we how do we take all that we've taught them? We think about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and what does it look like to live that out both individually. And as a community, in a time where there's so much uncertainty and unrest and stress and anxiety. And I want to just talk about what it looks like for us to live into this reality, to create kind of an alternative community in the midst of a world that is so stressed out, where there's just so much pressure. And we experience um, these realities of a pandemic and the social unrest that we're experiencing and the financial uncertainty. What does it look like to become a community Of the Spirit, really in a time that's characterized in many ways by the flesh, the secular kind of age that we live in. And so, if you are not familiar with the context of the book of Galatians, it might help just to start by naming kind of the realities that Paul's talking about here in Galatians. The uh, churches of Galatia were essentially a cluster of urban churches that the Apostle Paul planted in southern Galatia, in that southern Galatian region, on uh, one of his missionary journeys. And they had some incredible experiences with the Holy Spirit. I mean, this book is a treasure when it comes to life lived in the Spirit. It's really just a a letter that's all about how to live in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so you had this community that had this conversion experience where they were given the Holy Spirit, and they were learning to live by uh, kind of the the dance of the Spirit. And then, as usually happens, uh, some religious people kind of came in and squelched the Holy Spirit. They begin to quench the Spirit, these false teachers, um, who Paul calls the Judaizers, uh, people who taught the, the law of Moses. They came in and said, you know, really, um, what you need to be truly Christian, to truly believe the gospel, is to believe the gospel, but also to obey uh, the laws of Moses. These were uh, not uh, Jewish people. They were Gentile Christians. And so these Judaizers came in and said, what you need to do is to obey the law of Moses to be right with God. And so Paul writes this letter, furious, uh, filled with rage about this, this false teaching. He calls it a false gospel that was given by the demons, essentially. And his argument throughout the book is, actually, no, you are free. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's just Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit given to you. And he says, you are free. It's how he starts chapter five. You have been called. You've been invited. Um, Your vocation is to live as free children, sons and daughters of God. And it's a different kind of freedom than the way we often conceive of freedom in the modern West. It's not a freedom from authority or a freedom from, you know, kind of, uh, you know, just institutions or certain practices. It's actually more of a freedom too. So Paul makes this argument here that now that the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are free from the law, from these external rituals and uh, this performance-driven spirituality that characterized life before the Spirit, life under the law of Moses. And you're free, from, you're free from all of that, but you're free to love God, and you're free to love one another in profoundly countercultural ways. And so Paul's real concern in the, in, in the churches of Galatia is that they would learn to use that freedom in service of one another in their relationships, uh, in the community of faith. And so he talks about the profound nature of the Spirit's work in shaping their identity And in healing kind of racial and ethnic divisions in the church, uh, gender divisions that they were experiencing, class divisions they were experiencing in these churches. And he says, don't use your freedom right before this passage as an opportunity or as a launching pad, as a military term, "uh, to indulge your fleshly desires. And and, and in doing that, he sets up this contrast that I want to talk about today of uh, kind of this conflict or these conflicting systems or ways of being in the world. He sets up this contrast between life lived in the flesh and a life lived in the spirit. It's a, it's a battle. It's a conflict. It's um, Think of it like two um, operating systems. If you're into like computers, which I'm a, I'm a novice, admittedly, but I, I remember when uh, I made the shift in the early 20th, uh, 21st century from uh, the operating system of Microsoft Windows. Right, I had a PC uh, most of my growing up. And uh, when the MacBook came out in college, I made the shift to using a new operating system, the Apple operating system. And it was crazy, like it was so much more intuitive, it was faster, the graphic interface was totally different. Then uh, came the iPhone and that kind of uh, iPhone operating system, and it was just so beautiful and visual and fluid, and, and I just had this default mode of kind of wanting to go back to... Uh, the bondage, so to speak, of uh, Microsoft Windows, where you're always getting these like malware ad pop-ups, and you, you know, it's very like technical, and the way you interact with it's so different than Apple. Um, and, and the same thing here is like there's two operating systems that we have uh, access to as believers, two motivational systems, and they operate on very different software and hardware. They have different visions for the good life, They have different needs. They play to different needs, and they manufacture different kinds of desires and then lead to different kinds of practices or behaviors in our lives. And so the temptation, Paul says, is that we have to be careful that now we've been placed into the operating system of the Spirit, or rather the operating system of the Spirit has been placed inside of us. And he says the temptation is for us to uh, fall back into the old system or the default patterns that we learned in the flesh, right? And so I want to talk for a minute about what Paul means by the flesh. We've taught on this before, but um, it's not apparently obvious for many of us. This word flesh uh, is a Greek word that's kind of hard to translate. It's the word sarks and it literally means meat. Um, and so uh, when Paul talks about the flesh throughout the Bible, sometimes the flesh refers to our bodies or to our creatureliness, But it's not only a reference to our physical body. So Paul's not against the body. He's not down on the body or our physicality. It's more of kind of an acknowledgement of our weakness, uh, our vulnerabilities, our limitations as finite creatures. And so when Paul says we live uh, in the flesh and this flesh uh, is opposed to the spirit, notice the language here uh, in chapter five. He says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other. What happens in our life apart from God, our life in the flesh, life outside of God, is that we are constantly confronted with our weaknesses, right? Intellectual weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses, emotional weaknesses, and vulnerabilities. And rather than trusting God's presence, to satisfy and empower us in our weaknesses, to really lean into God, when we're living in the flesh, we try to power up. This is the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We try to power up and live independently of God. And so this, this life in the flesh, desires of the flesh, really speak to these coping strategies When confronted with our weaknesses and our limitations um, that create shame and guilt and fear, we develop these coping mechanisms or coping strategies to try to live and maneuver around God and live life independently of God and to live kind of off of our own operating system. This is really life in the flesh. And so when you hear desires of the flesh, don't think just like desires of the body or physical appetites, right? Um, This word desire, epithumia, is a word that uh, sometimes gets translated as lust. Probably a better translation is just over-desires. It's a compound word, over-desiring. And it can actually speak to not just craving or lusting after the wrong things, but actually can speak of uh, over-desiring good things, but desiring them in such a way that we control them and manipulate them or bend those realities towards our own selfish purposes. And so really it's about what is the motivation, what is the the kind of telos or the purpose or the end for which we are desiring what we desire. It's a question of just why do you desire what you desire? And we tend to twist those good things and turn them into ultimate things. And what we're seeking in the flesh is approval. We're seeking security. We're seeking to use these good gifts of God um, in ways that build up our self-worth um, but apart from God. And so our self-worth is kind of tied up in them. Our salvation is tied up in them. Our happiness is invested in them. And when they don't deliver, one of the ways we know we're in the flesh is we get enraged. We get paralyzed when these things don't come through and deliver um, on what they say they will. And so Paul says, be careful and watch out for the way of the flesh, the operating system of the flesh, what he calls works of the flesh, and he breaks this down, you could break this list down here in, chapter, in verse 19 and 20 uh, and 21 into kind of four categories. When we think of what does it actually look like uh, to live in the flesh, what are the works of the flesh? How do we know when we're under the power of the flesh? Um, there's four kind of categories. We see sexual sins or sexuality as a part of that. And that's one we tend to think of a lot when we think of life in the flesh. We think of, he talks about sexual morality, which the word there is pornea, from which we get our word pornography, and it's really seeking any kind of satisfaction um, outside of God's design for human flourishing. He talks about impurity. He talks about um, indulging the flesh, sensuality. These are kind of the the typical things we think of when we think of the works of the flesh, the more egregious and public uh, sins of the body. But notice the other categories here are often things we don't associate with life in the flesh. He talks about religion, right? He says, watch out for idolatry, and witchcraft. And, and by that, Paul doesn't just mean like carved statues that we bow down and worship. This idea of idolatry and witchcraft is anything that we invest our ultimate hope in outside of God, and anything we give our, our sense of kind of hope or trust or allegiance or loyalty to. So I mean, I th- think about the time in which we're living. You see all kinds of idolatry popping up uh, in a world that... Um, tries to seek kind of happiness and the good life apart from God. We see people putting their trust and giving their allegiance to politics. We see people putting their hope and trust in science. And again, none of these are bad things. These are good things. But when we elevate them and we make them ultimate things, the idea of witchcraft is not like some kind of weird like Ouija board or Wiccan practices, although that can certainly be that. What, what Paul's speaking of is using religion as a tool to manipulate the gods, often in drug-fueled kind of parties, using um, these, uh, these trappings of religion or tools of religion to manipulate and to control the gods. And man, how often we do that even with our Christian faith. We use church. We use the Bible. We use our own ideological stances and we elevate them. And those are all works of the flesh and their attempts to manipulate God uh, into doing what we want. And so Paul says, watch out for religion. Like the myth is that in a secular age, in an age of the flesh, people are becoming less and less religious. And that's not true. They may be attending church less. They may not be into Jesus, but they are increasingly becoming more religious. And religion can divine. He also talks mostly here in this passage about relationships, right? And so um, again, something we have to be aware of is when we're operating in the flesh, we see that our relationships begin to take on uh, hatred. They begin to express strife and jealousy and fits of anger and dissension and divisions and comparison and envy and Man, like, I don't know if you get on Facebook these days, but it just feels like that's exactly what uh, life in the flesh looks like right now. We see so much of the flesh exposed in times of stress and uncertainty and chaos. And I mean, we live in this moment of a global pandemic and massive social upheaval and injustices, and we see uh, just our relationships fragmenting and falling apart. And Paul says that is all evidence of the flesh. And we see that not just out in the world, like we see that right here in our own body, right here in Soma Church, in our missional communities, in our discipleship groups, in our leadership meetings. Like we see works of the flesh being made manifest in our inability to get along and to live in unity uh, in the midst of our diversity. And so Paul says that too can be evidence that the flesh is taking over. Um, he also talks about uh, excesses, indulgences, right? Like he goes on to talk about drunkenness and substance abuse and orgies, which, is, which were like drinking parties, essentially. Um, and so the, the point is, the, the works of the flesh are manifold. They're so, um, they're so comprehensive here. And, and again, these are just examples. This is not everything. Paul says, you know, such things like this. He's like, this is not the whole list. This is the list that they're struggling with here in this cluster of churches. But it's not an exhaustive list. But the point is, I want you to see that the flesh is different than what we might often think of it. The battle looks very different. It's, notice here that it's attitudes and it's behaviors. So things can look good on the outside, but on the inside you can be full of fleshly patterns and attitudes and thoughts and feelings. Things can look bad on the, you know, on the outside in terms of our social systems, but we could actually be growing in our life and the spirit on the inside. Uh, The point is, it's, it's, it's very comprehensive. These are sins of both the right and the left, progressives and conservatives. And so Paul here kind of closes this section on the flesh by saying those who do these things should not expect to inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's not saying here is that if we ever do these things, we won't inherit the kingdom. He's saying if our lives are dominated by these things, if our lives are marked by these things as a community, then what it does is actually reveal or expose that we are actually participating in the life of the Spirit and thus shouldn't expect to inherit the kingdom of God because this is the essence. What he's gonna go on to describe is the essence of the kingdom of God, that these things should be coming more and more true of us as we grow and we mature in our life in the Spirit. So Paul says, watch out for the flesh. right? Watch out in your churches for the flesh. Watch out as you move and operate in the world. The flesh is still a temptation, this operating system that kind of uh, beckons us or woos us to try to pursue life apart from the power and the presence of God. So Jesus says, don't um, gratify the desires of the flesh, walk by the Spirit. And that's the imitation that I want to invite us into as a community, is to cultivate, to learn to cultivate a life in the Spirit, and he uses a couple different uh, words here to describe a life in the Spirit. He says, walk in the Spirit, verse 16. He says, be led by the Spirit, verse 18. And then finally, keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit's on a dance, and it's up to us to kind of keep in step with what the Spirit's doing. And what he's using here when he says to walk in the Spirit, it's, it's a phrase that would have been very common to a Jewish person to describe Uh, ethics, or just kind of a way of life. He's not just saying, like, occasionally do this. This is like a present, active thing that we're engaged in in an ongoing way. You could kind of translate this, keep on walking in the Spirit daily. Make this a way of life, of abiding in Jesus and creating an environment where the gifts and the presence and the power of the Spirit can bear fruit in our lives that lasts. And that's really the whole point of the book of Galatians. If you, read a, if you read this book, you will see literally every chapter Paul is saying to them, you're now a spirit people. You are now full of the spirit. You owe your life and your existence as a community to the Holy Spirit. You were given the gift of the spirit at conversion. It's the Holy Spirit that has uh, been deposited in you that causes you to cry out, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit that sustains you and teaches you to say no to uh, discrimination, to say no to racism, to say no to classism, to say no to sexism, and to live into uh, this life that God has for you as a community. You've experienced manifestations and powerful miracles and charismatic um, things with the Holy Spirit. He's delivered you from slavery to freedom. So he says, now that the Spirit lives in you, You've got to keep on walking. You've got to learn a way of life that, that kind of flows out of the Spirit's presence in you. Let it infiltrate your heart. Let it infiltrate your mind. Let it permeate your soul, your body, your relationships, and your way of life as a community. Paul's primary concern here is not just for them as individuals, but they would be a Spirit-saturated community. And he gives us evidences for what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. How do you know if you're walking in the Spirit? Because you might think you're walking in the Spirit and actually be walking in the flesh. So what, is it, what does Paul say in terms of what it actually looks like? Notice verse uh, 22. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What's the fruit of a life that's seeking to surrender to the Spirit? It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He says, against such things there is no law you don't need to live under the law. And here he's speaking about the law of Moses, because the Spirit of God in you is teaching you the law. It's teaching you the mind and the heart of God. And so you need to learn to keep in step with the Spirit rather than looking to man-made external rules and rituals. So Paul used this, this agricultural analogy of fruit. And this is a prime metaphor throughout the scriptures, these agricultural analogies and the kind of the, the language of vine and fruit um, and, and agriculture and horticulture. And, and he's comparing here. Notice the comparison, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are things that we do in human power. The fruit of the Spirit is something that God does in us. It's a divine empowerment. Now, I don't know if you have ever planted uh, anything in a garden, uh, if you're a gardener, if you're kind of an outdoors person or whatever, uh, if you grew up on a farm here in Indiana somewhere, but if you know anything about um, the process of, of planting and tending a garden, this is, this is the, kind of the root language here is that of cultivating a garden. And uh, if you know anything about that kind of progress or growth, you know a couple things about uh, planting and working land. One, you know that that process is gradual, right? It is a slow painful process. It is, it's incremental. Um, you know, you go out and you till up the land, you clear it out, you plant the seeds, you nurture the seeds, you water the seeds, and, and you pull up the weeds. It's this really slow process. And it's like, it doesn't look like there's a lot of progress happening. And then all of a sudden you go out one day and there's fruit, right? There's the tomato, there's the cucumber, there's vegetables, whatever. And it's kind of like that with the Holy Spirit, um, a, a good example of this uh, was in my own life. Um, my oldest son uh, turned 13 last year, and is 14 now. And that's th- this kind of uh, organic analogy describes like the human development process. It's like um, you know, I can't see my son growing up, and then all of a sudden one day, like his voice is deepening, and he's one. You know, went to the doctor the other day, and he's one inch shorter than me, and he you know, he's like growing. And uh, for the first time a couple weeks ago, my son and I were out, we go running oftentimes throughout the week together, and I had been beating him and just kind of running a mile or two miles. One day he wakes up and he just smokes me. Like he goes out and he runs a six and a half minute mile, and I am like, you know, doubled over, barely making, you know, an eight minute mile. And it's like, well, he's growing up. And all of a sudden I see like he's becoming a man. And it's the same thing with the spirit. It's a gradual process of growing up. It's an internal process. Oftentimes what's happening is, is deep inside of us. It's internal, it's hidden. But it is inevitable. We will grow. If the spirit is living in us, we will eventually grow up. It's an inevitable process. And it's also an integral process. Notice the word "fruit" is just uh, one collective plural noun. It doesn't say "fruits of the spirit. It says "the fruit." of the spirit. It all grows up together. You can't have, in other words, one part of the fruit without the other. It works together in a very integral, symmetrical way. And so, for instance, like if if you look at the characteristic of gentleness, some people by temperament and by nature and by socialization are very gentle people. Um, but just because you're gentle by nature doesn't mean you're growing in gentleness or growing in the spirit. It just could actually sometimes being a gentle person is is being cowardly, right? We don't confront, we don't step into hard things and and deliver truth to people because we're not pairing that gentleness with love and with joy and with peace. And so um, when we bring these things together, we see that these are all characteristics of God's nature and his actions that get installed in us when the Spirit makes his home in us. The Holy Spirit begins to live in us and to cultivate these realities in us. And this is really meant to be um, a list that contrasts with and is an antidote for the works of the flesh in our particular cultural moment. Like these are very specific things that Paul is addressing here. And he's saying, if you want to overcome these, if you want to have a credible witness in the world, these things that you see here love, joy, peace, patience, and so on um, should become more and more characteristic of you. And they make you this countercultural community. And so if you look at our time, just thinking about this, uh, one pastor recently put this out as a list of contrasts with kind of the world in which we live. It can become, I'm going to fill this up on a slide, it, be- it can become a really powerful thing to meditate on and to think about what would it look like for us to be more and more marked by the fruit of the Spirit, not just individually, but as a community. To be a community of love, our wholehearted commitment and loyalty and honor towards one another in a time of selfishness. to become a community of joy, right? This delight, right? Not a cynicism, not a despair, but a delight that transcends our circumstances and is not resting on what's happening to us, but to be a community of joy in a time of despair, to be a community of peace or wholeness in a time of anxiety, to become a community of kindness in a time of harshness. To become a community of goodness, this restorative, um, you know, kind of integrity driven goodness in a time of brokenness. To be a community of faithfulness in a time of compromise. To be a community of humble, self forgetful gentleness in a time of violence. To be a community of self control, consistently choosing what's good and what's true and what's beautiful instead of being compulsive in a time of self fulfillment. This is the imitation of the spirit for us as a community now i want to begin to close by just answering the question what does it actually look like for us to cultivate a life led by the spirit paul doesn't leave us hanging he doesn't just leave this out here as a bunch of abstract ideas notice how he closes this passage life in the spirit is not um, left up to the imagination he says very clearly in verse 24 those who belong to christ jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How do we cultivate a life led by the Spirit? If we go back to our word agriculture, I think we can understand a little bit of kind of the, the space that Paul is kind of laying out for us here. This word culture comes from a Latin word um, from which we get the idea of cultivating a garden or a piece of land. If you think about the idea of farming. Um, if you have ever been a farmer before, you know that um, cultivating land and and developing a land that's fruitful comes through a combination of both grace and grit, right? Like, the grace is the divine empowerment. Like, it is, you know, the, the grit, like, you can work hard, you can prepare the land, you can lay everything out, but at the end of the day, you can't bring the rain. There's certain things that you don't control, and there's so many factors that go into a good harvest, right? Like the quality of the seed, the quality of the land, the terrain. Um, you know what kind of wildlife's in the area, the larger kind of uh, you know uh, ecology of what's happening in that general area. So all you can do is just make space. All you can do is work hard and have a grittiness to create an environment where things can grow and bear fruit. And it's the same thing in the life of the Spirit. We can cultivate and we can work and we can set up an environment where the Spirit can be free to to work and to convict and to empower. But we don't control the growth. It's a combination of grace and the divine empowerment that comes uh, through the fruit that only the Holy Spirit can bear in us and the grit of creating the space for the Spirit to work. And I just want to say two things about that from verse 24 that I think we can learn in our own lives. First is we need to learn and create that environment. We need to learn to abide in Jesus together. Uh, The Spirit, Paul says, has desires. Did you notice that back at the beginning of the passage? It's not just the flesh that has desires for us. The Spirit has desires for us. And what is the Spirit's desire? Verse 24, for us to remember that we belong to Jesus Christ, that we will never live life in the Spirit apart from the power of the Spirit helping us to abide in Jesus, to remember that we belong to Jesus, and only in him can we bear the kind of fruit that lasts. I think here of Jesus's words in John chapter 15, when he says to his disciples, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To abide in Jesus, both individually and as a community, means that we uh, embrace a way of life that has some basic spiritual practices that help ground us in our life with God, that help us participate in communion with God. The idea of abiding is to make our home in, literally to rest in God, to rest in Jesus as our very life, but like a vine relies on the minerals and the nutrients that are. That are kind of uh, you know extracted from the roots and the vine, so we too must plunge ourselves into abiding with Jesus, making our home in Him, through practices like prayer and meditation and Scripture. And uh, community, right? These committed relationships with one another. This isn't just about us as individuals bearing fruit. Like I look at this list, and I'm like, man, I'm doing okay in some of these, uh, but I have a lot of room to grow. And if I look at this list and I kind of measure my life up against this list, it does nothing but create shame and guilt and a sense of failure for how I'm not embodying the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is a collective project. It is a communal fruit. It's a shared crop that can only happen in community. You can't love uh, or grow in love alone, right? You have to have an object of your love. You have to love a person. You can't grow in joy without other people around you to celebrate and delight in God with. And so this is about us collectively embodying this reality as witnesses to the world. We wanna experience this kind of transformation in ourselves, but not just by ourselves or for ourselves. This is about learning to abide in Jesus. And then secondly, he says, um, as you learn to abide in Jesus, to belong to Jesus Christ, to remember that Christ loves you, that he, he loves you, that he died for you, that it's only in his love that fear is cast out and that we are free to face our weaknesses, to face our limitations and to abide in Jesus and trust his spirit to empower us. Then he says, you now have the power to crucify the disordered desires of the flesh. And this is kind of a weird way to talk about it, but if you understand what Paul means here, he's not talking about like punishing your body or treating your body harshly or some kind of weird asceticism. What Paul's talking about here is being aware of our fleshly patterns that have been kind of installed in us or ingrained in us through our uh, upbringing and and kind of our biology and our, you know, just kind of each one of us has a unique sin pattern and a unique complex culture in our hearts, and in our communities, you think about the complexity of a garden. Paul's saying there's the same complexity that exists in the culture uh, of our hearts and our communities that involves a number of intersecting factors, right? Like practices that we were raised to believe or, or do, symbols, stories that we were raised to believe, institutions that shape who we are and shape our vision of the good life. And then Western culture and our family systems and just our own bodies— Um, have multiple and often conflicting cultures that are unconsciously sown into our imagination, our thoughts, and our feelings. And if we're honest, sometimes those realities are not aligned with what the Spirit's doing. They're actually uh, characteristic of the flesh, and they produce a harvest in our lives in terms of our behaviors and how we treat other people and how we see the world and interpret reality. So we have to learn to get down to the root and to pull those things up, to work hard to identify those patterns and root out those seeds or those plants or areas of our life that are being animated by and controlled by the desires and the motivations. We can't just attack the behavior and say, stop hating people, stop being envious, stop comparing we have to get down to the root level, the motivation, and stop mowing the weeds, but actually pull up by the root and say, why is it that I envy? Why is it that I'm hate- hating this person? Why am I so bitter? Why do I struggle with jealousy? Why do I struggle with shame so deeply? Like, there are good reasons why, because seeds of kind of the dominant culture have been planted in our lives, and they're really hard to spot, right? Because they're hidden, and they're attached to our identities, and, um, and it's really hard to see them oftentimes. Philip Kennison who wrote a great book called Life on the Vine? says this, what is happening in many cases is that the church is simply cultivating at the center of its life the seeds that the dominant culture has sown in its midst. As a result, the seeds that the Spirit has sown are all but being choked out, and the fruit that is being brought to harvest has little or no likeness to the Spirit's fruit. Said another way, the church that is being cultivated in the United States looks suspiciously like the dominant culture rather than being an alternative culture to it. So we need to be asking the question, how can I create space to crucify the desires of the flesh, to identify those disordered desires that war against life and the Spirit, and to to create space for the Spirit to speak, for the Spirit to challenge, for the Spirit to transform and redeem those desires and point them towards God and allow God to heal them. One of the easiest ways to spot those patterns, Paul says, is just look at your relationships. Right, Ask people who know you, particularly those who are different than you and maybe who live with you and you, you trust and are safe people. Ask them, how are you experiencing me? Right? Am I becoming humbler and happier and wiser and more patient and more peaceful and less anxious than I was six months ago or a year ago or two years ago? We ought to be able to see again. It's, it's inevitable. It is gradual, but it's inevitable that we should be growing in the fruits of the Spirit, and we want to become a community that cultivates this kind of alternative Community. I want to fill this slide back up as we close. And I just want you to stop and imagine what it might look like for you and what it might look like for us to grow as a contrast, countercultural community, as a life, as a community that uh, walks in the Spirit and that lives in the power of the Spirit as an alternative to what we're experiencing right now in in a hostile and secular and kind of um, fleshly age. And man, this is my prayer for us that rather than being dominated by the flesh, we would look inside ourselves first and see where we are still being controlled by our flesh. And we'd seek to crucify that by the power of the Spirit and surrender ourselves to the life that God has for us as his people. Love in a time of selfishness. Joy in a time of despair. Peace in a time of anxiety. Patience in a time of reactivity. Kindness in a time of harshness, goodness in a time of brokenness, faithfulness in a time of compromise, gentleness in a time of violence, and self-control in a time of self-fulfillment. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to walk in the Spirit as a community that we would not uh, gratify the desires of the flesh, but that we would live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit that's been planted into us uh, as a deposit of good faith would grow and grow and grow, and that we'd be more and more marked in the coming months in a time of uncertainty and fear and so much shame um, and, and just uncertainty that we would be controlled more and more by the Spirit, that the Spirit would manifest these works in our community, that we would become more loving more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kindness, uh, more beautiful, more faithful and gentle and self-control. And that in doing so, we would look more and more like Jesus and we would have a powerful witness in the world as we move out into our relationships, our families, our workplaces. God, would you make us a community that is saturated by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.